Good evening, good evening, and thank you for joining us on this beautiful Tuesday. It is a Tuesday, and if it's a Tuesday, you know what that means. It's time for Change Matters. We do this each and every Tuesday here on the Intentional Talk Radio Network. It's 7 o'clock here in the Big D, Dallas Tejas. It is 8 o'clock on the East Coast, and it's 5 o'clock on the West Coast. If you're in the mountain time zone, hey, you do the math. We've got another great show lined up for you, so stick and stay and don't go away. And remember, tell a neighbor, tell a friend about the Change Matters movement. I'm your host, Kenny Hendricks. And I am your host, Colette Williams. And yes, as Kenny Hendricks says, stick and stay, don't go away. It is time for the truth. It's time to tell the truth. And that's what we're doing right here on the Intentional Talk Radio Network. We've got a great show lined up for you this afternoon, and we want you to be a part of this because we've got to get things better. We've got to tell the truth. We've got to tell the truth about the community. We've got to tell the truth about where we are as a community. And we've put together a great panel of experts, masterminds to talk to us about the truth and what it means. And as you can see, Juneteenth, we've got a great holiday. Juneteenth, we got a whole lot of barbecue and red soda water coming out for Juneteenth. We've got reparations to talk about. We've got Tulsa to talk about. I'm sure you know the story about Tulsa and Black Wall Street and what happened, how it happened, and why we haven't been back there since 1921. We've got to talk about reparations. What do reparations look like? Do we need a boatload of money coming into the Black community? Or how can we get reparations and not have to fight for it again? Critical race theory. We will be talking about critical race theory. I'm sure you've heard about it. Do you know what it really means? So we're going to break all that down for you this evening. We're going to have a great time talking about it. We want you to join us this evening and go to ITR. ITRNRadio.com. That's ITRNRadio.com. You can also get us on YouTube. You can also get us on Amazon, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Black Talk Radio Network, and join the conversation. We want to know what you're thinking. And in the words of Douglas, Frederick Douglass, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. And we know this to be true. Look around. It is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. That's why our prisons are overflowing. We're trying to repair broken men. It's a lot easier to build strong children than it is to repair broken men. Another proverb, an African proverb, Proverb, when you educate a man, you educate an individual. But if and when you educate a woman, you educate a nation. And that's not to say that men are any different. Think about it. When you educate a man, you educate an individual. When you educate a woman, you educate a nation. Women bring children into the earth, onto the earth, into the world. And we want those children to grow up to be strong adults rather than broken men. 
So I hope that you're with us. I hope that you're going to be with us this entire, for this entire dialogue. We've got great guests for you this afternoon. As I said, we've got the incomparable Mr. Danny Glover, my BFF. We've got Professor Amos Jones, another BFF of mine. We've got Mr. James Turkneck, another BFF of mine. And the list goes on. Am I forgetting anyone, Ken? No, I think you've got them all. Uh, did you mention uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. James Tucker? Dr. James Tucker, another BFF of mine, who keeps me informed about all of the things that are taking place with Juneteenth. In fact, we've had Dr. James Tucker on the show, and he is a, a staunch supporter of Juneteenth and all that Juneteenth needs to, all that we need to know about Juneteenth. And I met Dr. James Tucker through one of our hosts here, and I'm so glad that we talk as often as we do because he is very knowledgeable. He has informed me on so many things about Juneteenth, about Africa, doing business in Africa, what's going on on the continent of Africa. He is a wealth of information. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Ken so we can get this going. We've got two hours to talk about this, and I can assure you we're going to run out of time. Ken? And to introduce our esteemed panelists, I'm going to start with uh, Apostle James Turknett. Mr. Turknett is a graduate of uh, Carter High School here in Dallas. And at 18, after he graduated from high school, he listed in the U.S. Army, serving two tours overseas in Korea. During his time in the Army, he served as artilleryman and artillery chief, NBC chief, special weapons chief, unit police chief, supply chief, ammo driver's chief, drill sergeant, staff sergeant, and equal opportunity representative for his company. He returned home in 1991, where he became a licensed minister and an ordained pastor in 1993 and in 1997 consecrated to the office of bishop and apostle. He's pastored for over 25 years. He chaired the Bruton Terrace Weed and Seed Program with Police Chief Gray and Ben Click, who was an aide to Eddie Bernice Johnson. During his professional career, he worked as an agent and president of Atlanta Life Insurance Agency and became a licensed coach for business and life transformation in 2015. Apostle Turknet has shared the stage with Bishop T.D. Jakes, Pastor Ricky Rush, Kirk Franklin, Martin Luther King III, Mark Butler, Judge Chica Iam, Judge Kim Brown, and many other religious, civil rights, and various industry leaders. Next up, we have Dr. James Tucker. Dr. Tucker was born in Madrid, Missouri, and he began his crusade for justice and equality while earning his undergraduate graduate degree in history and political science from Russ College in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Upon graduation, he enlisted in the Army and served three years in active duty at Fort Carson, Colorado. He also served 17 years at the Colorado Army National Guard. In 1985, he received his master's degree in counseling and student development from Tuskegee University. In 1991, Mr. Dr. Tucker served in the Gulf War as a legal specialist with the 217th Medical Battalion. While serving in Iraq, he drafted an outline of the African-American Voice newspaper. 
He published the first edition in 1991. Then he partnered with the Colorado College to produce a documentary of black newspapers, of which the African-American voice is the longest running in southern Colorado. In 1995, he retired from the Colorado Army National Guard as a decorated war veteran who received three bronze stars. He taught social studies at Harrison High School for 24 years, retiring in 2001. And in 2007, he received an honorary doctor of management degree from Colorado Technical University. Then we have Amos Jones. Amos Jones is a lawyer and a legal scholar in Washington, D.C. He's a widely published authority on the law of racial relations and constitutional rights, and he's been a public supporter of reparations all his life. He's advocated for them as a columnist for the Harvard Law Record in 2006 and as a presenter at the International Reparations Symposium at the University of Edinburgh in 2015. As a top-rated practitioner, he has prosecuted numerous civil rights actions, including against governmental agencies. He received his Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, cum laude, from Emory University in 2000, his Master of Science from the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism in 2003, and his Doctor of Laws degree from Harvard University in 2006. In 2006 and 7, he was a Fulbright Visiting Scholar at Melbourne, and in the fall of 2015, was an academic advisor to the Faculty of Law at Oxford. In addition to engaging in the full-time practice of law and lecturing, Jones is a former journalist and he serves as adjunct professor of media at the Trinity Washington University in the District of Columbia and is executive director of the African American Trust for Historic Preservation in his native Lexington, Kentucky. And finally, and, and definitely not least, we have the world-renowned actor Danny Glover, actor and activist Danny Glover. I've got four and a half pages of movies that he has starred in or been in, and I'm not going to go through all these movies. You guys know who he is. Again, Mr. Danny Glover, I would like to say this. As a lifelong social and political activist, Glover has been giving speeches for decades. He's delivered speeches to the American Postal Workers Union, spoken out against the death penalty, and addressed an audience at the same place where Reverend Martin Luther King gave his historic speech against the Vietnam War in 1967. If you can name a social issue, there's a decent chance that Danny Glover has spoken about it. He also leverages his public speaking demand for causes he's passionate about. He once refused to speak at a UC Berkeley graduation ceremony unless 400 custodial workers got a raise. Those are our guests. We want to thank our guests for being here, and we are ready to get this panel started. Thank you so much for being here, and I'll turn this back over to Colette. All right, and thank you so much, Ken. And yes, we do have an esteemed panel here. This is fabulous. And as I said in the beginning, we are going to talk about Juneteenth, Tulsa, reparations, and critical race theory, all of which everyone on this panel is well-versed in. They are scholars. They are here to tell us what we need to know about each one of these categories. So I'm going to start the questioning with my buddy, Mr. Professor Amos Jones. I'm going to start the questioning with Amos Jones. And Professor Jones, this is going to be a snippet just for a moment, but I want you to expand on everything. Tell us your feeling about Tulsa. I've got to start with Tulsa because there's so many things that we've learned about Tulsa the reason that it happened, the bombing, all of the people that were killed, 1921, Black Wall Street, 
What are we missing? And why do you think Tulsa has not come back? Professor. Thank you, Colette. It's good to be here. And to my esteemed co-panelists, good evening. And to the listening audience, um, Tulsa is such an important story, not just what happened in 1921, but what's happening in 2021. And that is a commemoration of the worst act of racial violence, the first act of air power on the mainland of America against African-Americans, a deputized white group of uh, the white mob um, massacred a, a very prosperous and self-sustaining, self-sufficient, self-respecting Black community. Um, and really what it stands for, that massacre about which we're all familiar now, is the uh, repetitive beatdown on Black agency that we officially have and that remains uncompensated for. Um, so I, I am so uh, excited that finally, 100 years after the fact, and, and this really started about 25 years ago, um, when, when people started to tell the truth, to use our theme, about what had happened in 1921. Because for years, uh, the white media had claimed that the Black people actually committed violence. So Tulsa, the, the Greenwood community, which was a prosperous, about approximately 30 square block area of many Black businesses, hotels, churches, and homes, um, was destroyed. It was rebuilt by the 40s, but then it was destroyed again in urban renewal, like so many Black communities. So Tulsa and Greenwood were not exceptional. The evisceration of a, um, of a, of a mind-your-own-business, build-your-own-community, circulate a dollar a bunch of times within it, um, the thwarting of that has happened in many other contexts and happens even today. Uh, and here we are. So the, the lens of critical race theory and that approach, that method as it is, supplies a way in which the broader story can be told because the powers that be in the academic world, in the journalistic world, and even in the theological world until Dr. King came along, had uh, been in a complicity of lies that ignored the reality of the law and of the facts and that spun a narrative, what I call falsified documents. Um, and it's still happening in courts today. If you look at any discrimination suit, it's amazing at how many judges just lie about the record and pretend that a completely different set of things happen and dismiss Black people's cases. Well, that's like Greenwood in a way. And so one thing I'm committed to is being in dialogue with people from different disciplines and different forms of activists. And I'm so glad that we have the extremely distinguished and stalwart figure of the world, Mr. Danny Glover here, people like him who have brought attention to and who have put a stop to the oppressions. We talk about microaggressions, but Blacks have faced macroaggressions. And we all know it's happening. So it's good that you're giving voice, Colette and Kenny, to these tragedies that are really the, the default reality for Black Americans even now. Absolutely, the default reality. And the, the default reality, maybe it isn't. And, and with that, we're talking about things that have taken place in this country, and we still are not able to get past those things, such as the massacre in 1921. What do you think it will take for us to get past all of this? Well, it'll take more than commemoration and, and a premature reconciliation. See, for reconciliation to happen, conciliation is supposed to come first. And there's a lot of unfinished business. Uh, those people need to be paid. The descendants need to be paid. 
you know, one thing COVID did economically is to show us what I've been saying for decades. Whenever America has a need, we cover it because this country has all the money in the world. Don't you let the, the mentality and the rhetoric of scarcity in Washington fool you. If we had to declare war on somebody, there's no question that we would have the money right away. And if you have to start taking things, we did that in World War II and we won. Now there's way more money. And the fact of the matter is in the global economy with international trade, we can afford it. And we know this because of PPP and EIDL loans, which black businesses didn't get enough of at all. Um, It just repositioned us at the bottom economically in a way because we didn't have the systems in place. It's like the new, everything's a literacy test. It seems objective, but when you consider that Blacks were denied credit and didn't have resources to do proper bookkeeping and things like that, it wasn't so easy to obtain those small business loans. So I think we might have gotten a percent of those, which is typical for small business administration-backed loans. So there's not to be um, actual restorative justice, which means remunerative justice. And that's not controversial. Every other group gets that. That's the basis of tort law. You slip and fall in a restaurant, you get paid. I don't know why we change the rules when it comes to African-American. And I don't care if you blow your money on FUBU and KFC. That's your privilege. We never ask how the money will be spent until it comes to African-Americans. Well, we know how to do our money. After all, we built all these wonderful churches and schools on a shoestring. Harriet Tubman somehow, you know, it, it, it cost her money to go back into slavery and, and liberate us over and over again. So we have found a way to do this stuff on shoestrings. And some of the most beautiful African-American buildings were built when we were Jim Crow completely. So let us understand the power that we have if only we could um, uh, be heard. And so uh, thanks, thanks to the independent Black media, inter- intentional talk radio network and others, but we, we've got to, it's got to be just resources um, because we're undercapitalized and we have been since we were chattel. Right. Absolutely. In the aggregate. Yeah. And, and with that, just as you were saying, reparations, and you don't care how it's spent, we shouldn't care how it's spent. We should and care. We should care. We should have seminars and things among our own people. But that, it, it's a cop out to say, oh, they don't know what to do with it. Right. Oh, they don't. Know. That that is never the question when you're doing justice. What if they had asked about whether George Floyd's family knew what to do with twenty seven million dollars? Exactly. I hope and pray that they know what to do with it. But my first concern is to get them the twenty seven million dollars that they got. Yeah. Uh, that's the first step. Yeah, and and then the teaching, then educating, or beforehand. Yeah. The point yes. is, don't pretend that a de- an apparent deficiency in one area negates the justice claim overall. Yeah. That that that's that doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, and so we can't fall into that trap. And never. And again, we know how to we know how to accumulate wealth and 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 hold on to it when we don't have a massacre happening over uh, beating down uppity Negroes, which right. is. What Tulsa was, and what happens in a lot of these discrimination cases that I bring, including wow. against the government. Okay, you better not raise your hand to a federal agency that discriminated. They will retaliate so badly. I have to prepare my clients in advance. You know, when you hire me, understand this could go sideways real fast. Yeah. Um, fortunately, usually it doesn't, and when it does, we will make that crooked way straight to the best of our ability. But they're coming. Uh, because there are entrenched interests in hoarding the resources. And that starts with 
supporting the vote because all our politicians do is allocate all of our money. Reparations is largely a refund check for all the Jim Crow's money that we had to pay into institutions we couldn't even go to. Mm -hmm. And my mother and father are 82 and 81 years old going around alive and they grew up Jim Crow in Tennessee and Kentucky. They, if they got just a refund of the money that went to the parks, the libraries, the water fountains, the universities, that would be a, a good little bit of money in hand. And I hope that we achieve this before they depart the earth. Right. Absolutely. Ken, any questions for our guest? Yes, um, I've got one of the official documents on uh, the whole Tulsa massacre and going through it. One of the things that I read about was the fact that about two weeks before that massacre occurred, there was a white man who was arrested for, I believe it was molesting a child or something like that. And the people of Tulsa, the white people of Tulsa, found him, took him and lynched him. Now, the black people in the Greenwood area saw that happening and they realized if they would do that to one of their own, what would they do to us? So there was some warning. Okay. My question to the panel is, and I will go to Danny Glover about this, what can we do to make sure that we are prepared that this doesn't happen again? Because in my estimation, I've said this to several people, we are one big lie from this happening again. We are one big lie away from another Tulsa. Those people went down on January 6th to the Capitol building and breached the Capitol building on a lie. So if another lie is told that is a lie against us, do not think that those people would not hesitate. Don't think that they'd hesitate to come do something in our communities. So, Danny, what's your thoughts on what are the types of things that we need to do to make sure that this never happens again? And Danny, you're on mute. Ms. Williams, uh, for putting together this uh, esteemed number of scholars, men, uh, waiting to look for some woman's analysis of this, some sister's analysis of this as well. And, and I'm trying to, since I think of myself as a, a quasi-historian, um, and, and, I, and I, I say that in all, all honesty, my major was economics, um, and I, I try to understand what, what, what moments are we in, and how do we understand, catalyze, or how do we shape the thoughts of a particular moment, Tulsa 20, a one was at a very extraordinary moment in the history of American capitalism. The U.S. had, had become, it assumed, a, a power that had, it, it was re ready, ready and willing to exploit on its way to become the most powerful country in the world. It had not come to that reach in there. What are the internal contradictions that exist with slavery and the history of this country. And I think those are important to understand. We're, we're only, in 1921, we're only uh, less than 50 years after the Civil War, the end of the Civil War, the end of slavery, and the many contradictions that arise from that. The, ex the expansion 
of the system, the new system or the system of capitalism which dominated the 19th century into the early part of the 20th century. Opposed to that were, were different radical notions among whites, uh, uh, those who were um, uh, against Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896, Eugene Debs being one, union leaders. So there's an enormous amount of conflict at, aside from the fact that women were exploiting or exposing the needs, their particular needs and demands on this system as well. So we look at the context of this, this period that ends really a period that ends in 1929 with the crash of the market of 1929. All these, I think we have to look in, 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 in terms of not only a national contradict, the natural contradictions that exist in the system itself, the internal struggles that were going into that, uh, to, uh, within that system, and the radical notions surrounding that system itself and understanding that which come to a head with the crash of the market of 1929, the ensuing uh, uh, continued radicalism around labor, around movements. You had some of the most uh, radical black intellectuals in that particular moment as well, notably W.B. Du Bois, and a number of us who were analyzing this and, and tried to create a framework, not only in terms of formerly enslaved Africans, but also a, fr a framework in terms of understanding the, uh, the, the new dynamics in the world that we live in. Um, so it, it, a country that was emerging into world power, dealing with this is, is really uh, audacious kind of behavior where they come to the massacre of First Nation peoples. At one point at the beginning of the, the 20th century, at the end of the 19th century, it was concerned that Native people, First Nation people, might come extinct in this country. All these are the contradictions that are happening at this particular point in time in a, a, a system ripe for great possibilities with new relationships that begin to emerge with the, the, the overthrow of the uh, Ro Russian, uh, Russian uh, uh, aristocracy in, 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 in the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. We cannot understand ourselves in relationship, and that's where the framework without understanding also the, the kind of natural, national contradictions as well as the global contradictions that we face at a particular point in time. They're inseparable. They work in such a way and, and, and coalesce in such a way in understanding where we are and what happens at a moment. It is an amazing triumph. For, I think it's one of the most amazing triumphs for, in human history for what African Americans did post-1863. It's enormous. Du Bois writes in his black, his, his black Reconstruction in 1940, he talks about this enormous, incredible moment in which African Americans uh, exceed any possibilities, uh, unimaginable possibilities in this country after the uh, of life under 
with four million African Americans at the time of emancipation enslaved. So all of these kind of things that we happen, I, I think it's necessary and for us to comment on this one moment of extraordinary triumph in, in a bitter and a divided and a racist country is, is to understand that, you know, what does it mean? Because at all fronts, in many fronts, the whole system was being challenged. And understand that, whether it's a socialist running three times from the 1900 uh, to uh, for three times for presidents and was imprisoned because of his opposition to the World War One, which he felt was an expansionist adventure of capitalist countries, which it was in a sense. So, and, and all those, all those things, all those things are important for us to understand what this moment meant, and, and how we can understand this moment, acknowledge this moment, and celebrate our our condemnation of it and our, re our anger of it and everything else. But what does it mean as we talk about it in the, in the, in the framework of the changing explosive dynamics involved in, I use the word, uh, world capitalism and African capitalism. We have one, we have one on the other side, say, the, the Berlin Conference in 1895, in which Africa is divided up in the colonies, and at that time, at the beginning, right in the at a very pivotal point in the Industrial Revolution, and that that division or, or that 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 colonization led to the amassing of wealth for those countries, European countries, and everything. Look at the United States within that context as well. Uh, and, and and we knew about the British Empire. The statement about the British Empire is that the sun never sets on the British Empire, which included some of those countries, but other countries in the world. So these are the kind of dynamics we have uh, dynamics we make sense of a, a of amazing moment of formerly enslaved Africans left to wander, basically, no forty acres in a mule, none of that and everything, and they themselves create this exceptional moment, which is destroyed in its way which may have had his own contradictions internally as well, you know, at this particular moment. As, as we all do that, struggle means one thing for us, and, and not only is the resolution or attempted resolution of the contradictions before against us, you know. So the, the white community is afraid that this black community has, has, has taken on the most incredible, audacious project to build us a community Unity of prosperity. That's the dangers from formerly from the descendants of formerly enslaved Africa. That in itself is a danger dangerous to those and strikes enormous fear into those people. Right. And the political the political framework exasperates those fears in such a way, creates the kind of insecurities in such a way. We can make this argument that brings about this whole aspect that we find that lands in Tulsa. We see we see in in 1898, uh, in North Carolina, and, and, and in North Carolina, where a multiracial government was formed, and there was an attempts, there was an action, an attempt, there was an overthrow, a coup d'état on that government at the end of the 19th century. So all of those things are happening, when and all of them service what? A system of exploitation, a system that attempts, and in some attempts uses race. Racism, race, wherever it is, this is used 
China's racism right now, Chinese racism, Asian racism right now, uses race as its pillar for existence and the continuance of its domination. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And we all agree that this, the, the one, the audacity of it all, two, where we find ourselves, three, we have come back when it was thought that we would not come back. And in 1921, with with Greenwood, how did these descendants of Africans, how did they come back to this degree? How did they come back? And look at where we are now. Look at where we are now. The same thought process is had. I was listening to the insurrection, the hearing on the insurrection, and one of those idiots said to an officer, don't shoot us. We're not BLM. Okay, so we're still thought of as inferior. We are not a full man. We're not human. We're not BLM. So shoot them. It's it's okay. It's okay. You won't be losing anything. So that's a horse of a different color that we'll tackle down the road. I have a question for uh, Reverend James Turknet. And my question for Reverend is Juneteenth. Juneteenth. Tell us about Juneteenth and why we should celebrate Juneteenth with barbecue and red soda water and bread pudding. And and what's the banana one called? Banana pudding. (laughs) Thank you, uh, Colette. I'm from Texas. So in Texas, Juneteenth mean a whole lot to us. And um, I was glad to have the opportunity to march with Miss Opal and have an opportunity to be a part. We grew up with Juneteenth. Um, that's something that's really been really large in Texas ever since I've been a child. I literally talked to Miss Opal and saw her heart, how she wanted the holiday to be passed and she wanted things to go through. She had talked to President Obama and she wasn't for sure if it was going to be passed. For me and myself, I think it's important that it was passed. Now, I hear a lot of people say, well, it's just they're throwing crumbs at us. They're giving us this. Could be true. But from my perspective and from my knowledge from a um, theological point of view, uh, everything comes from something small. And so uh, we live in a period we call the third day. That's what we believe. I don't think a lot of uh, black uh, theologians are familiar with it, but I discovered it from some Haitians. And third day simply means as God raised Jesus on the third day, so shall he raise up the black people. And they would be the eyes of the church and they would be, they will usher in the coming of the Lord. They will bring all races of people together. And the theory of it is that the blacks, as the children of Issachar, who were wise, and little passages in scripture say they were wise because they knew the times. These people would know the times and the seasons. And a lot of the whites are very aware of the principle of the third day. And so what they are afraid of is for us to raise up and recognize the dispensation of change, that things have changed over from one commander to the next. So we just happen to be born under what we call JFAT. JFAT is a European sun. And for 2,000 years, 
from the time of Christ's birth to the year 2000, not our calendar of 2000, but probably the Gregorian calendar, which is uh, about the time Obama 2008 got in office, we went to a dispensation change. So we're not where we were 30 years ago, 50, 100 years ago. And so one reason we're having a lot of failure is because we're fighting a fight with old techniques. And there's nothing wrong with old techniques, except we've moved on to a different realm. And, and we got a different authority as people of color. And you could see with James Brown, you could see with so many, they were showing us examples. Michael Jackson, they were trying to show us examples of how we should put the power in our hand. We know Michael Jackson was a billionaire when he died. James Brown was one of the smartest people in the world. He put the power in his hand. They had him, you know, framed, jailed, you know, saying he owed taxes and stuff. So for us today in Texas, we believe in Juneteenth. It may seem small to some people, but we believe that everything that has been stolen from us is going to be taken back. And so Juneteenth is just a part of us in, because that's, that's when the Texans knew we were free. We didn't know that we were free. So yeah, in two years later. We didn't know two years later. Mm-hmm. We didn't get, so that's huge to us. Now for us to have the whole country to celebrate that, it's a big thing to us in Texas. So I think it may seem small, but trust me, I believe without a doubt it's going to lead to other things. Now, do I believe we should get reparations? Sure, I believe we should get reparations. But I believe we're going to, just like I, uh, Brother Amos said, um, Mr. Jones said, very qualified way, uh, you know, yeah, they need some training. We've been fighting. I'm fighting. I'm a politician. I'm a preacher. I've been fighting for people to get money. And uh, people have been trying to hinder. Most of it has been our own people because they don't understand that uh, we're trying to get money for, from, for them. They allow other people to tell them we're trying to take money from them. And so, you know, I've talked to businesses and made deals and the businesses want to pay the people. And the people come against themselves. We do have a lot of education that we need to get into the hands of our people and and get our people prepared so they can receive um, the reparations. Because some of them could be receiving some now, but they're not prepared. They're fighting each other. And and as you said, people have to be educated. People absolutely need to be educated. And Mm -hmm. it's too bad that we rely on others to educate our own families, communities. We rely on others to do that. And what would make someone who looks like us think that it's okay for someone else to educate us? They're going to give us what they want us to have. It's the the very same thing when someone else is creating your own, your narrative, your destiny, they're going to do it their way. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to sit back and complain. Why would you complain? You allow them to do it. That's you allow exactly them right. to do it. So don't complain. So we've got to educate people in these communities that this is something that can't, we can't wait for any longer. Exactly. We, we can't wait any longer. How much longer should we wait? How much longer do we have to wait? And, and just as it was stated, the day that we got Juneteenth, Biden signed that on the 18th. We knew it and we partied on the 19th. And my question was great. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now, now what, what do we do now? We got a holiday. What do we do now? 
As that's far always as I'm the question. This is my hurt. What was that? I said that's always the question. Now what? Now what? So we we now have a holiday. What does that do for everything else? Where does that put us? What does that do for us? Does anybody feel better about it? Does anybody think you're right about it? I think you're right about that. I like to say this in conclusion. There's something we got here. I don't know if it's everywhere. It's called Chodos. I had to go find what a Chodo was. And what Chodo is, is a governor of an area that allows money to come into that region. And in some places, they call them governors. And it's very important to find out who the Chodos are because there are a, the government have not released the money yet, but there are a lot of private institutions that are prepared to release money. The problem we have is we have the wrong Chodos. We have the wrong governors in position who are not going to allow the money to get into the hands of the people. So that's something we need to take a look at and we need to review. For some reason, we are afraid of change. When there are yeah. people that are capable of coming in and being Chodos or governors, they don't want those people. They want the same ones. And as you know, the uh, I'm not going to call the name, but the movement they had $100 million. There's more than that that's been given out there. Why is this money not coming into our communities? Mm-hmm. Something is wrong with the Chodos or the leaders who, who are governing the money that's coming in. And I'll close at that. Right. Thank you very much. I want to go to uh, Dr. James Tucker. Uh, the same question for you, Dr. Tucker. We're still talking about Juneteenth and the need to understand how we got Juneteenth, why we got Juneteenth, and where do we go from here? Do we celebrate every Juneteenth and forget everything else? Was that smoke and mirrors? What do we do about Juneteenth? How can we use Juneteenth as a platform? Because we've got to fix this. We absolutely must fix this. And we do have Sylvia Myers on, the wife of the late Dr. Sylvia Myers, Dr. Meyer, I'm sorry, the late Dr. Robert Myers. And Sylvia Myers is keeping his vision and his mission alive. And she continues to fight the very good fight for Juneteenth. Dr. Myers fought for 30 years to get Juneteenth as a holiday. And it's happened. So after uh, Dr. Tucker, we're going to talk with Sylvia Myers. Dr. Tucker? have to unmute yourself. Excuse me. Dr. Tucker, you're on, you're still on mute. Okay. You're still on mute, Dr. Tucker. Is he the 719 number? Yes, there he is. Dr. Tucker. I'm here. Go ahead. First of all, okay. sister, we, we must... Uh-oh. Dr. Tucker, okay. you're breaking up. He's got a very bad connection. Dr. Tucker, you there? Can you hear me now? Yeah, we got okay, you now, we yeah. We have you now. We have you. Yes. No, we don't. Well, we had you. Dr. Tucker, you're gone again. Okay, Dr. Tucker, we're going to go over to Sylvia Myers while you try to get a better signal. Okay, there you are, Dr. Tucker. No, we lost him. 
Okay. Sylvia Myers is on. Okay. Sylvia, you're on mute. Okay, you're going to have to unmute yourself. She's, she's there, you there. there she goes. There I am. Hi, thank you um, for, for having me Absolutely. on this evening. And please forgive me of my tardiness. Um, no, that's okay. <laughs> Um, I, I had a class that I attended this evening and um, I just just got in. I want to jump right in. Um, but um, what was the question? Because I think I came in on the tail end. We wanted to know your feeling. Your husband mm-hmm. was the the primary in talk, walking the halls of Congress, talking to people all over the country about Juneteenth. And the need for Juneteenth to be recognized all over the country. And tell us about the work that he did and the work that you're continuing to do with Juneteenth. We know that Juneteenth is, is a holiday. Yes. And, and do we just celebrate it? Or is this smoke and mirrors? Or what do you think? Go ahead. Um, it, it is to be celebrated, first of all. But... Also, we need to educate our children and the public the significance of Juneteenth um, due to the fact that a lot of that history and a lot of our history, true history, not distorted history, have has not been taught in our school system for so long. And we're, we have to catch up. We have to catch up and bring everybody to speed as to who we are as a people, not just, um, we weren't just as, as they would like to depict us as Mm -hmm. savages that they picked off the coast of Africa or, or wherever. Um, we are people of, of substance and, and, and that is something that is to be celebrated and also to be taught to our children. So they will know from whence they came from that they will have a sense of pride about themselves. Um, uh, we need to just continue the uh, um, uh, to, to educate the American people um, uh, as, as to the history and, and what we have done um, in America, uh, the building of some of the uh, major cities here, all of that needs to be taught and it needs to be acknowledged. Um, Juneteenth, as you know, um, my husband did fought tirelessly to make Juneteenth uh, uh, a day of observance, but he got more than what he asked for, which was uh, uh, a federal holiday. Uh, but Juneteenth and Fourth of July completes America's freedom um, because the Fourth of July freed the land. Juneteenth, the people, and I would like to see uh, Juneteenth celebrated as much as the Fourth of July with all the pomp and circumstance as we uh, have for, for July programs uh, um, every 4th of July. Right. Um, that's what I would like to see. Uh, education, uh, as I said, educating our people 
And, and well, not just our people, but America is a must. We have to continue to do that. Um, and that's um, one of the things that I will continue um, to do um, is, is to bring awareness to everyone uh, about the history and the importance of uh, Juneteenth. Do you think that Juneteenth giving this a, a uh, holiday, mm-hmm. do you think it's smoke and mirrors? Do you think that, that it's just uh, placate, smoke and mirrors? What do you think about that? In light of your husband doing 30 years of work to, in order to become a holiday, is it really a day of teaching, educating people? People really need to know what Juneteenth is all about, not just a day of celebration, mm-hmm. but people really need to know what Juneteenth is all about. Absolutely. That, that is, that's the work we have to continue because so much had been um, focused around celebrating and not much education. And that is what we need to work on, educating not only our people, but America as a whole um, about the significance of Juneteenth and what it means. Yes. Yes. Dr. Tucker, are you with us? I'm with you now, yes. Okay, very very good, very good. Okay, tell us what your feeling is about Juneteenth. Well, first of all, uh, the history of Juneteenth must not be distorted. Dr. Ron Meyer was the originator, father of Juneteenth. He's responsible for making Juneteenth a national holiday. There's individuals out there who are trying to take credit for his work, and that's wrong. Uh, I admire openly for doing her walk, but the truth is, Dr. Myers, uh, she served on Dr. Myers' board, and, and very little was mentioned of him uh, during the entire process. And most importantly, it's, it's important to understand that Texas did not want to be a part of the national holiday. I traveled to Dr. Myers at the 2015 150th anniversary to Texas, and while I was there, he tried to meet with the legislators. Prior to that, they tried to meet with him, but all of them ignored him. They refused to give him credit and they ignored him and did not do anything to support, uh, uh, to really make it a holiday. And it's important for us to understand and know the history of Juneteenth. And, of course, Juneteenth is not only just about African-Americans. we got to look at the big picture. We've got to look at the transatlantic slave trade. We've got to focus on transatlantic uh, connections, transatlantic uh, partnerships in order for us to get what we deserve. Because we will not get what we deserve by simply trying to do it in the United States of America. We must get the African Union, uh, the uh, organization in, in the diaspora involved to get the United States government to, to, to uh, give us reparations for, for slavery. And it, should, and it just should not be focused on Texas. It should be focused on January 1st, 1863, when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which did, which did not free one slave in the rebellious states. Okay, so tell us, in your words, of course, tell us what Juneteenth is going to do for us as a people. We well, it's not going to do. Go ahead. It's not going to do anything for us. It's, let me just. It's not going to do anything for us as a people because we got too many African Americans out there who are selling out. Number one. Number two. The only people benefiting are going to be uh, those individuals, uh, the, the descendants of slave owners, the hotels, and the, the hotel owners. 
travel industry, the manufacturing company, those people are going to benefit. And that's why a guy out there who sold Dr. Myers intellectual properties, he's a part of that group, and he's working with those conservatives, and he's misrepresenting the legacy of Dr. Ron Myers and also African-Americans in this country. He has no history, no background. And it's sad. Oakley is supporting him, and she should be speaking up, saying that, Steve, we didn't, I'm not going to call his name, but anyway, we didn't know you before all this took place. You know, and, and, and it's sad. So the question is, what can we do or what should we do? We should expose all the individuals out there who are misrepresenting us, who are out there trying to distort the history of Juneteenth. The history must be told properly, and if it's not told properly, it means that it means nothing to African Americans. And as I mentioned earlier, the only people that actually benefiting are the descendants of slave owners. Okay. So, yeah. And and that's with so many things. That's with so many things. Not simply Juneteenth, but that's with so many things. So what is your remedy? What is the resolve for all of this? Because as we started talking about this, one of the things that we have to always remember is that there's a great deal of division in our community, a great deal of division. So how, how do we bring people together collectively? How do we create connectivity? How do we create a collaboration? How do we curate the way this could look? We've talked about this more times than I can count. I believe we're the only ethnicity, we're the only community, we're the only race that is so divided as we are. Not another race is as divided as we are, whether it's Juneteenth or reparations. How do we get to a resolve when there's so much division? Sister, all we're going to resolve is that conscious Black men, Black men must stand up, they must expose sellouts, they must get involved in the community. They must feel part, active part in the community. They must get to know the people in the community. Most of these people are here calling themselves leaders. They do not visit the Black community. They are not connected with the people in the Black community. They're out there uh, uh, taking a crown from the table and selling us out. So it's got to be a plan of action to get the people directly involved in the community, get to know the people. And that's, I, you know, I'm not bragging, but that's what I do. I, I spoke at an event on, on Saturday in the neighborhood, you know, where, where they're actually uh, taking buildings and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and creating jobs in the community for the people. But guess who, but guess who was out there trying to sell them out? Guess who to call, guess who called the police on trying to get some of the activities shut down? A, a, a black guy by the name of Muhammad. And, and also, uh, you know, we got to expose those people. I live in St. Louis, Missouri. We have a uh, sister, Tashara Jones, and she is a, a one of the greatest leaders in the history of the United States of America. I mean, she's smooth, she's calm, and she's well-educated. But the people who's fighting her are the blacks who have been in position, black males who have been in position, and some of the females who have been in position for a long time who are not supporting her to do the right thing to bring about changes. So we have got to go against the status quo, number one. Number two, we got to support countries and real leaders in this country and expose those, who, expose those who are not doing the right thing. And it's not going to be a pretty picture, but it's got to be done. Right. It, it won't be a pretty picture. That's for sure. That's for sure. I want to go to Professor Amos Jones. Hello? Yeah, Kim. Yes, thank you. Right. Thank you, Dr. Tucker, for that. And you're exactly right. There's been a shift. Um, there was some talk from the pastor about the, the new dispensation. Um, but there's been a reverse uh, shift as well on the part of Black Americans. Not all of it our own fault. 
for one thing, you all have heard of the post-traumatic slave disorder phenomenon um, out of critical theory in a way. And um, we have to look back to what Dr. Carter G. Woodson, the father of Black history, taught us about ourselves when he systematized what was done to Black Americans in slavery. And what ha happened was that he, he made it so clear why Black people would tear down the leader supporting Black people and even advancing them. What's in the head of someone who's that self-destructive and selfish and prideful and self-centered? It's not as pathological as it would appear. Here's what Dr. Woodson told us. And we have to remember that this mentality festers within our community, which is why so many people never want to see a more appropriate person who's more effective and who gets results and who can lead better to actually lead. The bondsman was taught by the master that he, the bondsman, was the best at what he could do. You, I'm from Kentucky. You're a blacksmith. Amos, slave Amos, nobody can make horseshoes better than you. Oh, you got it on the horseshoes, Amos, the slave. I mean, you are just the best nigra. Mm -hmm. Well, remember, most slavery was not Kunta Kinte slavery. Right. My home church purchased their pastor's freedom, and he went out and founded a Black newspaper in Louisville and about 15 other Black churches across Kentucky with that freedom and the General Association of Baptists in Kentucky, too. Going in and out. So you could negotiate with the master in most slavery and buy your way out. So the ambassador buys Kenny Hendricks from down the river. And here comes <laughs> Kenny, and Kenny makes black, black. He's a blacksmith, too. Well, I was the one who really knew how to make the horseshoes. Master came to me, and here's Kenny, and that's threatening my ability to buy my wife out of freedom and my babies. So I have to sabotage Kenny in order for my own plan that I've been working for years to do. And so we were put into a situation of bad choices. And that has endured to where we cannot yield to more competent people. That's why Martin Luther King was the greatest American leader of all time, because we coalesced around him. And a lot of people weren't following King. There's a myth that the Black church was with King. No, it wasn't. The National Baptist Convention was the largest Black organization in the world. And it was so against King that the Progressive National Baptist Convention had to be formed, which leads me to the next point about what... Um, Dr. Turner was saying about how we need to call out and remove the race traitors. Detroit had something for years, and I guess it's still there, called the Black Slate. The Black Slate was established in the 60s in order to take political control of the city of Detroit on behalf of the Blacks who were then or becoming the majority because they were not represented by the people before they had Black political power. They understood what you could do with Black political power, the reins of city government. So they installed the Black slate that helped with things like at-large voting to educate the voters to have Black political representation. Black people took over Detroit and had control until this cockamamie receivership or whatever uh, happened. But here's what Black Detroiters understood, probably from the union motif that educated them. After Black people took political control, the Black slate did not dissolve itself. The Black slate remained 
and maybe remains in existence to make sure that Black political leadership is Black enough. Even Mayor Dennis Archer did not escape the wrath of the Black slate in the late 90s. When they brought casino gambling to Detroit and all of those big casino contracts went to white businessmen and no Blacks in Detroit, they had a recall petition out there, the Black slate. I think we need a national Black slate that goes around and plucks out the George Wilsons of the world. Who is George Wilson? The one who ratted out the 1822 Denmark busy slave revolt, causing the Citadel to be built, uh, the AME church to basically be shut down in South Carolina because they were so radical. That was our own Uncle Tom, if you will. And by the way, even Uncle Tom converted to the cause of liberation, Josiah Henson, in his life. So we need to understand the origins of this. Let me be the spokesperson, even though I don't know anything and I've never done anything and I don't know how to do anything but run my mouth. We need to flip that on out of the picture like we did in the good old days of the 1910s and 20s after Reconstruction was shut down. We had a blueprint first. The great attorney Alton Maddox in New York has said, Black people aren't allowed to have architects. Architects make plans. COINTELPRO made sure that we don't have that anymore after Dr. King got bumped off. We haven't had it since. We haven't really done anything big since 1968. That's right. That's absolutely right. The fact of the matter is you have to understand the civil rights movement and the street activism was a means to Mm -hmm. achieve the ends that have been written out in Reconstruction and after. Mm -hmm. They knew that we needed uh, desegregation, voting rights, fair housing. And then so Dr. King and them marched for that. They had this March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 63 for the Public Accommodations Bill in 64. That's why I have a practice. The EEOC came about. It was thought up long before they marched. Now we see a crisis and then we go and march reactively. And after we burn the cities, we don't have any legislation or programs that had already been put in there. So the or else part, no justice, no peace. We're impotent. Yes. Exactly. And part of that is that the wrong people are out here with their mouths in front of the microphones on what I call the white TV, okay? Mm -hmm. Which is all Mm -hmm. the TV now. Because Mm -hmm. New York City doesn't even have a Black-owned radio station. How do we have all these doctorates and all this education and these student loans that we're in debt and in slavery that we use for the education? But we have less than we ever had, but we're so smart and we so woke. (laughs) So we've got to reclaim our brains and go back to the Fannie Lou Hamer University and the Harriet Tubman MDiv, because if we let them determine who gets the microphone and who gets the hundred million, they told uh, they told Michael he couldn't dance, Whitney she couldn't sing, and Martin he couldn't preach. Well, we had other ideas, and we've been vindicated globally as Black Americans, and that's what Mr. Glover was talking about when he talked about the great achievements. As Marion Barry said, after he had a little bit of trouble and he was a great mayor, that's why we put him back in. I walk with my head held up. Hi, I am a black American man. You, you cannot humiliate me. You cannot humiliate me face to race. I can humiliate you. And that's the way we need to reorient ourselves once we have reclaimed our brains and we have a black slate in every municipality and village across this land. That's what needs to happen with a blueprint first. And then a takedown of these systems. 
Outstanding. Who are waiting Outstanding. in the wings to take the reins and to pick up where Dr. King left off. Wow. Outstanding. Wow. Uh, Outstanding. Uh, Professor Jones, that was, that was marvelous. That was absolutely marvelous. Very Thank powerful. You. The next question, I'd like to go back to uh, Danny Glover again. Um, and, and, and I like the way you guys uh, both, uh, 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 Amy Jones, you talked about it a, a bit. And also, uh, Mr. Tucker, you talked about it a bit. You know, historically in our community, the churches have been the places where we gathered. They've been the uh, solace that we found. Uh, and obviously back, you know, even when we were slaves, it was the only place where we could congregate. So historically and even today, those are the places in our community where people go. My question, uh, Danny, and, and, and after Danny, I'd like to get uh, James Turkney to, uh, to respond to that as well. What is the church's role today in moving us forward? And what are the things that they need to be doing and that maybe that they aren't doing? And what can we do to help them move this forward? Wow. <laughs> we can have a whole evening. Now. Yeah. Uh, we... we we have one of the one of the greatest um, greatest voices in in uh, I don't know what's happening with my what's it called right now. I'm sorry. Uh, we've got um, you. We can hear you, and we've got you on video too. So I'm, you're good. I'm, I'm just I oh, 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 hold on. Just just what's it? Go let come back to me. Okay, just a minute. Okay. Um, uh, okay. James, you want to go ahead and take that about the churches, and then we can go back to uh, Danny. Great. Uh, James, you need to unmute. We know that the church is definitely each Monday deposit a trillion dollars in the white banks. And then the church can't even get a loan. Right. We know that. That's true. So, first of all, we have to be good stewards over what God has blessed us with. Most of the pastors, especially black pastors, don't know of the theory of the third day. So they don't know it's time for us to empower the people. We have been so conditional to be traditional and preach and make the people feel happy. Now we've got to start teaching and educating and getting our people in a place where they can take over. Because if you really understand the ministry of Jesus, every city he went to, he took it over. We're not here to have church. We're here to take over. You got to change the mentality. You got to change how you're doing things, what you're saying. And so uh, we've got all these gigantic churches and mega churches. But what are we what do we own? Uh, again, I heard the brother say, uh, New York, they have no radio stations. I sat down and told the two Christian radio stations we had here in Dallas. I said, listen, you guys need to come together and work together. I said, honestly, if you don't work together, somebody's not going to be in existence. The mega pastors are not going to help you when the trouble comes. Mm-hmm. Listen to me. They didn't. So one of the, the most famed uh, one is gone because it was owned by whites and it's gone it doesn't exist you know it bought it bought it and it bought both of them and now one is gone the other is a cash cow so they wanted to leave it on the table it's a cash cow so they keep the cash cow we've got to come together and forget about 
who's in the front. I don't care if it's a two-year-old, 12-year-old. Okay. They got the knowledge and they can lead the revolution. Then let that person take us to the promised land. See, somebody's got to pick up the mantle. I'm just like any other black. I'll be honest. I, I tell the guys when I go to colleges, they call me doctor now, but I was the dumbest guy in America. But I heard Dr. King's tapes one day in Seoul, Korea, and I could hear him. I have a dream, a dream deeply rooted in American society. White men, black men, too. I heard him over and over. If you go sweep the streets, be the best street sweeper. I kept hearing this, and it began to change me. And one day, that dumb boy went in the store and bought all those tapes. And it changed my thinking. And I came back from Korea. I was a different person. I said, I'm going to make a change. And then our people said, oh, he's prejudiced now. He's racist. No, no. I came, I came to help my people come out. And so we started helping businesses, helping teaching blacks to go in their own business, start their own business. We have a couple thousand blacks start their own business. And we hope to help them to help one another. See, if we don't come back and give back, we're missing it. We have the power. But first, we're going to have to go back and re-educate our leadership, which is our pastors. We've got it. We've got to educate them on politics. You got to come in and take the seven communities. And I'm going to let Danny come in. One is politics, religion, entertainment, banking, finance, the arts, education. There's a couple more mountains. You can look them up. You have to take these mountains in order to take over your city. Mm-hmm. It's our time. But the man that does not know the time and the season is the worst man. And this is the African proverb. If there is no enemy within, the enemy outside can do me no harm. Yeah. But if you got enemy inside, you ain't got to worry about the outside. Yes. We have that ability. We have the education. We have the voices. We are the best communicators in the entire world. Mm-hmm. But we must pull together and band together and become one. Mm-hmm. I yield the floor. Danny. We're talking about religion. Uh, we, we look at the AME Church and the Abolitionist Church. Uh, AME broke away from the Methodist Church near the end of the um, the end of the 18th century uh, and took on a position of being uh, a force against the abolition of slavery. Uh, before there was any public concern about that. And you, if you go around places like Africa, the AME Church is still strong because not only did it become a formidable role in, in the abolition of slavery in the United States, certain issues around decolonization, the AME Church was there, uh, always there. You have AME. In fact, Mandela went to school at AME schools. They were sponsored by Nelson Mandela, went to schools, but AME schools that were sponsored by it because it was an abolition and against against the abolition of apartheid, the abolition of, abolition of uh, uh, colonialism. The AME church was the one reporting to Congress at the end of the 19th century about the atrocities in the Congo by King Leopold. It was an AME church. And all of this kind of, all of this dynamic, you know, but, but, um, uh, in a sense, and, and, and certainly we, we, we could talk about um, the, the 
the levels of engagement with the AME Church in the civil rights movement. Uh, certainly, uh, um, I would consider a uh, uh, a Dr. King as a as a as a, a liberation theolo theologian. That is the case. <clears throat> At the end of uh, in the 19, late 1960s and in the 70s, it was Catholic theologians who were prompting people, poor people, and supporting poor people who were who were rebelling, rebelling against what was happening in their respective Latin American countries. The the the, the uh, Catholic Church threw them to the dogs, threw them to the wolf wolves. At that particular point, so understand that religion have have religion and and those who are in the process of liberation using you using uh, the gospel, Christian gospel, and Jesus as a a liberator and a revolutionary have been very that's that's been the course. Whether we talk about in 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 Latin America and all in the world where embrace, embrace, people have embraced liberation, so in some the general sense in that, but I think I remember uh, Harry Belafonte telling a story at one moment about Martin Luther King to Martin Luther King in a conversation they had, and he said Dr. King said to Mar to to Harry Belafonte says Harry I don't know if we're integrating our people into a burning house. He said he's told that story, and and Harry Belafonte says to him, after all the work we've done, after all the work we're doing, what do we, you suggest we do? And Dr. King said, I guess we have to become firemen, <laughs> in a sense. And and that's that has always been the crucible for that is democracy works or not is in the in in the uh the expressions of about of defiance and liberation by african americans period of uh, uh, formerly enslaved africans and so we we have to, we're still there we're still there and okay whatever we talk about and everything else we talk about occupy we talk about it still resides itself in that that question so the civil rights movement, or as, as Reverend Barber calls, the Second Reconstruction, mm -hmm. Second Reconstruction, as an embodiment of this 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 historic historic placement of formerly enslaved Africans in that sense, and it still is. When we talk about all the indices about um, wealth, all the indices about health, and everything, we're still at the bottom. And mm -hmm. the resides in our and I was coming. And, and I said, what are the dynamics uh, uh, besides calling, having our general call, we got to get together. What are the dynamics in which we struggle for that and, and, and to struggle for justice? And because the, the struggle for African-American justice has struggled for, uh, for, for justice for, for uh, LGBTQ, women's, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and, and for all those other movements that have happened, it's been the pivotal movement in that expression for the struggle for justice has been through that of the formerly, of formerly enslaved Africans, descendants of formerly enslaved Africans. And I, I think it's important 
important to know that history and to know that we 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 engage in, in, in our engagement and not just their specifics. You know, you know. I just we just lost one of the great leaders in the civil rights movement and post civil rights movement just now. You know, someone who who, who get, risked his life and as a young man to get people to vote, saying that voting was the crucible for democracy in the 20th century. He says now, and it worked on, he said, the math literacy, the algebra project, Bob Moses, in that sense, and talked about that. And, in the, and, 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 and saying that we have to, in ourselves, in making our children 21st century citizenships, that means being able to participate, being able to demand, being able to be a voice in the course of change, they have to be efficient, proficient in algebra. And it may be far, 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 far expensive, but in a sense, if we begin to talk about, about our children's science, not only not only getting in a study of getting a job form, but we need a sense of citizenship. Um, and, and, and the right to vote was that. I remember being old enough, because I'm 75 years old, being my fourth grade teacher from Beaumont, Texas. She was saying, I'm not simply in, in the business of making just good students. And all of us, all of us kids, we were living in the housing project. I'm in the business of making good citizens. So what does citizenship in, in that? As active citizens, you know, in a sense, and, 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 and also dynamic, creative, and, uh, and, and being able to speak truth to power. That's what citizenship is. Absolutely. Now, this next question Go I have ahead, is Jen. for uh, 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 Dr. Tucker. Um, and going back to your bio, three years, um, active duty, 17 years in the Colorado National Guard, you know, a lot of our young, particularly black men and women, don't see themselves in the military. They don't see themselves in law enforcement. A lot of times we don't avail ourselves to the political process. So my question to you, Dr. Tucker, is what do you tell young people today about joining the military and the types of things? What Make that the military, law enforcement, and politics. What do you tell people today about that being a good choice for a career move? particularly when you talk about people in the inner cities who don't have a whole lot of choices. Military can build character, and we cannot change things in the political arena if we do not avail ourselves of those processes. So I'd like to get your thoughts on what do we tell young people about getting involved there? First of all, I like to start with the police department. And I think it's important for young people to get to know the police in the neighborhood. For example, I live in St. Louis. They have a black police association, a white police association. And of course, they are totally, the black police association faces discrimination against the white police association. And there's a struggle for destiny cause the black police in St. Louis. So when it comes to police, I think it's, you have good police and you have bad policemen. So it's important for people to get to know the police in their community and also get to know the, um, especially the black policemen. And of course, as the black police Association tell me all the time, if you know any bad cops out there, let me know. We're going to get rid of them. So, to make a long story short, it's important for young people to be involved in the community, number one, and get to know the policemen in the community. If they're bad, report them and, do, and, and you know, get the people in the community to do something about it. And, 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 they, and the system works 
but you got to be dedicated and committed to making it. When it comes to the military, I spent 17 years in the military, and I tell you, I faced so much racism, discrimination. 17 years in one promotion. I had more education, all the white boys in there, but I had a goal. And that goal was to retire so I can have the benefits. Now I'm enjoying the benefits. It wasn't easy, but on the other hand, it was a way for me to get out of poverty and get off welfare. Okay. So I use it as a as a tool. I use it as a way to, uh, you know, get education, get training. Well, but I can also, on the good side of the military, you got some good people in the military. And, of course, even people in the military today, when I talk to them, I say, if you have a bad commander or bad leader, get them under that leadership as soon as possible and find someone you can work with. So it's important to know the system and how the system works. Right. Right. As long okay. as you understand that you're using the system and don't let the system use you. You, like you mm-hmm. say, get your education, learn a trade, whatever you can do. It does not have to be, I'm not fighting the white, white man's war. And now is a good time for people to join. All the troops are coming back from uh, Afghanistan and Iran. I believe they're all supposed to be back by the end of this month. So I think now is a good time. Colette? Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Yeah. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Did you want to say one but, more thing? Yeah, yeah I think it's very important for young people to participate and be involved in the community and learn the community, know the history of the community, get to know the people who are serious and dedicated to the community about working with them. And that's a challenge. And that's why I said earlier that leaders should be involved in the community. They shouldn't be out there exploiting, taking advantage of the program, taking the money out of the community, and they live in a different neighborhood. They shouldn't live in the neighborhood with the people, and they shouldn't get to know the people in the community. That's where the problem lies today. And I, I don't mind saying, I don't mind calling names like the Urban League, NAACP. Those organizations have been pimping black community for too many years. And that's why we must call them out. And we must, and I say it again, we must get them out of the community. Have them, just get them out of the community if they're not operating in good faith. And most of them are not operating in good faith. 99.5% of them are not operating in good faith. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Tucker. Let's go to Chauncey, who's in our audience. Chauncey Brown. Chauncey, you have a comment? Yes. Thank you very much. I want to thank all of those who came before me throughout the couple of hundred years of history that we're talking about today that allows me to be here today. But what's very interesting by me listening to all the listeners is we're talking about the Black condition, but we're only talking about the Black condition between 100 and 200 years or we're talking about the black condition from slavery. Even when we talk about religion, we're only talking about Christianity. Blacks weren't Christians until slave trade and the master gave them the Bible when it was written after the early 1500s, they gave it to them in the early 1600s. Who were black people prior to coming to America? We weren't Christians. This is the type of history that we need to be talking about. We were kings, we were queens. We're not teaching our children the right history. We're talking about the uncomfortable history or the challenges that we went through. Why don't we talk about our greatness? Mm-hmm. That's what I don't hear in conversations today. Religion is a distraction. Religion has not done anything for the black community to bring it forward. Has not. And we're talking about after Martin Luther King, the black community has been non-existent. 
And now we're even talking about black organizations that are non-existent. So we're really talking about the black condition. And if we don't know who we are, how do we know where we're going? Prior to the United States of America, because right now for the past four or 500 years, we've been indoctrinated with the European construct. We've been told what our history is. And as I listen, we're talking, going around the table talking, we're sharing experiences of our history of our descendants. We must go back further. We are not victims. We're victors. Exactly. As, 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 as Brother Amos had said earlier, we need to reclaim our right yeah. as kings, queens, pharaohs. Mm-hmm. You know, I teach my daughters and sons that you are gods. Are we teaching our family members, our children that? And I don't mean that God in a superior way in a way that you can do all things because you were created from the most high. Yeah. You are a child of the most high. Yes. These are the type of things that we need to start teaching our children is to get into them spiritually, not religiously, spiritually. If we want our children to grow, we have to be great spiritual examples not great speakers, not people with a lot of money. How do we communicate spiritually with our children? We are losing black-on-black children, 13, 14, with no spirit, people. That is the problem. Mm. We are existing. We're not even living with no spirit. How do we reclaim the black-conditioned spirit? That is my challenge. That's yeah. my purpose right now in life. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We gotcha. have all these other talking points. I like to. I like to. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But how do we move our people through the spirit? Right. Right. Not talking about Jesus, but acting like him. Yeah. I and you it. know what? And you know what? I'm going to throw this over to James Turkneck. But one of the things that I wanted to say about that is you're absolutely right. And I know that that Danny Glover is sitting there. He's going to respond to this. James, you're going to respond. Amos is going to respond. But one of the things that I want to say before all of you respond is that I do remember back in the 60s, back in the 60s, we worked and we fought and we dealt with the Black condition. That was one of the things that we, yes, it was the Black condition. It was. It was. I'm going to turn it over to James and then to uh, Danny Glover, then to Amos. Go and ahead. Thank you. And I apologize for my excitement. No, no. Uh-uh. <laughs> no, no. And we do have folks in the audience who have said, who made the comments, Blacks all over the country, yes. specifically in Los Angeles, have sold out. So let's yes. go right ahead, James. And we, I, do I have to call, and we do have to call them out like Brother Amos said. Yes. Yes. we got to yes. call them out. Yes. yes. I, I totally agree with you, Amos. We must have a spiritual, uh, it's not about religion, it's about relationships. Exactly. And first of all, we must have the paradigm shift. Basically, everybody knows what that is. It's a change of mind. Our mind has to be changed. That's number one. You cannot do anything if your mind is not changed. But number two, 
like our forefathers, we must have a paradoxical shift. Now, let me break that down. The problem we have gotten ourselves into, the white people can't get us out of it. It's going to take a paradoxical shift. It's got to come from a heavenly mind. Yes. It's got to be a pattern from something higher than where the problem was made from. So we need a paradoxical shift. Like the Egyptians had a paradoxical shift, and they got measurements that caused them to build pyramids supernaturally from a paradoxical shift that gave them the mind when they didn't even have equipment to give those measures. Like they build the Cleopatras, the Pharaohs, the Candaces. We that build. Female we build. They, they, we build. We build. Years we build. We we rule the world. The smartest people in the whole world that everyone came, the Caucasus, the Caucasians came out of mountains to get the wisdom that they had. That Our we had. Team, you know, uh, Nimrod, the mighty hunter before law, he was Babel. He was he, he was Calma Erect. And then they called him in Greece, they called him Zeus. But he married to Ishtar or Isis. And that's out of Genesis, the 10th chapter. And and so, which is the uh, fertility goddess. And they had a son. Their birthday is December 25th. And their son, Tammuz, who they call Hercules. But he was a black man. And these were kings. They ruled. They ruled the earth. And they were very powerful. We come from kingship. It, exactly. the, revival, the third day is, is, is called a revival. It's going to be a revival that's getting ready to come through the black people. And, and, and it's going to bring, now, 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 watch what I'm about to say. The black people are going to bring all races together because we were first. This is where the scripture said the first should be last. Who's last? I've been all around the world. I spoke every place. I've been in London, everywhere. We're last, everywhere I go. But he said, the last shall be first. He has supernaturally, strategically set it up and designed it to bring us out of last place, put us into first place, and we are to come together in true intercessory prayer. You got to have intercessors to do this. You can't just have talkers and communicators. You have people who know how to hit and call him and let the spirit of God come in. And we're going to bring a revival that's going to shake the world upside down. It's not going to happen. It's actually getting, it's happening now because revival comes in the worst times, in the worst situation. The white people understand they can't do this. They can't change this. So we are now prepared for this tough time. We are educated for this. We already, we've been waiting on this season and this time. But the problem is we have had fight against one another because I want to be the smartest. Excuse my life. The hell with who the smartest. Who has the mindset to surrender themselves and allow God to lead and guide them to bring the people together so we can be one? That's all we need. No degrees, no pedigrees. We need a leadership. We have a lack, like my new book, we call it Passion and Purpose of Leadership. We don't have enough people with passion and purpose to do true successful leadership to bring the people out of the situations. And, and they keep trying and to shut the voice down of people that have been called by God to bring the people out. But you cannot stop God's people for so long. They will come out of the dust. They will come out of ashes and become the people that God wants them to be. And this is the time and season. And if you're not the one, can you recommend me another one? If it's not you, then who? If not here, then where? If not now, then when? I'm going to be quiet. And guess what? And those that don't want to, then get out of the way. For those that can and will get out of the way. Let's go to Professor Jones. Professor Jones. Thank you. I thought that Mr. Glover was next, but I'm happy to go. I'm happy (laughs) to go because I want to pick up on what Mr. Glover and others have said. Um, 
uh, and the, and I'm calling Mr. Glover Mr. Glover because I'm so in awe of Danny Glover. I just, I, you know, yes. <laughs> he's I my BFF. So, but he brought up the AME Church, and so I'm holding up a book. My my camera went down, so I could walk into my living room and pull this off of a secretary, and I leave it there so that people will ask me about it. I have a lot of books. But I keep this 2000 book, Social Protest Thought in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, 1862 to 1939, visible to my guests. And the reason is that we've done all this before in the frameworks that are right here. Okay. We were the first professional athletes in the 60s, the 1860s. Mm. Jockeys were the first professional athletes. And when the Kentucky Derby began, and for example, in 1875, 13 of 15 jockeys were black. And 15 of the first 28 Kentucky Derbies, those first 28 years, were won by black athletes and they were paid. Then, of course, they took that away, just like Greenwood. It gives prestigious and the money. Boom, you're out of the picture. Had to right. go to Europe. The jockeys like wink, wink. Yes. So, you know, but that's the thing. So we've done this through these frameworks. When Richard Allen walked out and led the dist black worship out of the white St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church of Philadelphia in 1787, they didn't have a boot or a strap. And they built a denomination where this book could come out in 2000 by, edited by Stephen Angel and Anthony Penn. What's the book? It's a compilation of the social protest and theological theory and foundation found where? In the AME publications, mm-hmm. in the AME organs. I mentioned George Washington UP in Kentucky. They found the American Baptist is the Kentucky Black Baptist newspaper. I'm ashamed. I'm from an old Baptist Kentucky family. I didn't learn that the American Baptist newspaper, the organ of our Black State Association, was the oldest continuously operating Black paper in America until I went to Columbia Journalism School and learned from a white professor that that was the the longest running Black paper in America. I didn't know that. Came to our house every week. And the print. This is part of the solution part. We have done it. We understood how to use our churches like Addisonian Baptist, where I heard 20 years ago uh, Harry Belafonte tell the story of Dr. King. He tells it a lot, saying, I fear we're integrating into Bernie House. I heard that as a 20 year old kid in Addisonian Baptist Church. Why? Because Addisonian, with those leaders they've had, over the years, is a cultural outpost in a political activist place with a vision. They're, they're about to start bashing uh, uh, bad music, I think, again. That's what I heard the pastor alluding to a couple of weeks ago, like they were doing in the 90s, with all this misogynist rap music tearing down Black right. women. Like yes. yes. Yeah, respectability politics works. All politics is respectability politics. And don't let the white people trick you into going around with those pants on your behind where people can see all of that. That's not getting us anywhere. There's no liberation. And everybody knows that we've been tricked. Everybody's doing respectability. Everybody. The women's groups, the gay groups, everybody's and and everybody in the in the Congress is not an atheist, pretty much. But we know they are, but they have to be respectable. So we don't need to be tricked. We have mastered and we have revolutionized these, these structures and systems. And we have liberated ourselves. And we've also liberated our oppressed people from the yoke 
of spiritual bondage that they found themselves in and find themselves in when they discriminate against us. Because nobody's theology uh, other than uh, the Mormons before they reformed themselves with Revelation in 1978 anymore believes that black people are all going to hell. That's old thinking. So we help to liberate them from their own hellbound ways, whether you are Muslim or, or Jewish or Christian or any of the great religions, Zoroastrianism, that race discrimination stuff doesn't fly in the world's major religions. And so I believe that we don't need to look too far to understand our capacity. So what's the solution? I think the solution is to go back to where, first of all, we control our own communication, as with Internet Intentional Talk Radio Network. Um, we have to present the voices and the ideas and the effective uh, record that's behind us to show people you can use your vote even when you're a minority in a town and exert political power to get what the black community is entitled to. You don't even have to have a black majority. And here's how that was done. So you do this through communication as we're doing here, but it has to be regular. It has to be funded. It has to be trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So, and we did that before. That's why you can have the book social protest thought in the Amy church, because as the back States, this information all came to these scholars through the AME's own newspapers and publications and minutes over 200 years. That's one thing. The second thing is we have to have a program that is a, a set of deliverables. Okay, so if we know that when President Obama came into office, 8% of small business administration back loans were going to black businesses. But when Barack Obama left, there were millions more white millionaires, but not millions more blacks. And the percentage of SBA loans went down to 1% for black people. Then we need to have figured something out and understood that maybe we have to keep black people speak to the fire as well. Maybe a black secretary of HUD, Ben Carson, might not be a, the black face in a high place that gets us more homes. Because we've been having black HUD secretaries for about 50 years, but we have fewer homes all of a sudden. So we have to look back at what actually works. And sometimes what works is a white person in the right place, like Rockefeller, who helped set up Spelman and Morehouse. And then in the white world, Rockefeller basically helped to invent the defined benefit retirement plan through his denomination, the American Baptist Churches. That was like the first 401k type defined benefit retirement plan for missionary. So we have to look beyond Kemet and King, but even go up to Rockefeller. And, uh, and these other geniuses, frankly, whose solutions are transcendental as well. We have to be very broad-minded, but it starts with knowing, and knowing can come only through publication. It's so sad that we have very few Black publishing houses left, if any. My if denomination, any. the Progressive if National any. Baptist Convention, used to have a publishing house. We right. don't have a publishing house, and it's much easier to publish books now. Maybe that's mm -hmm. why. But I think there's a value in owning and defining and networking those of us who are in accord and understand what we have to do to collectively move up because it cannot be done with it's a sad day when our reparations groups are fighting each other. That Absolutely. is a beautiful example of how COINTELPRO yes. is working. Yes. When you have black pro reparations groups that can't get along, not get along. and white folk don't have to worry about you, you hit the nail on the head. That's right. That's why they're not worried about us. Right. So folks, stop thinking they are thinking about us because they're not. 
They're waiting for us to destroy ourselves. They watch us destroy ourselves. It's been orchestrated. That is the design. Stop doing what you're doing because that's exactly what they want you to do. They've designed it that way. They've designed it that way and you're falling. I don't even want to say victim to it. You're falling. You're playing to it. You're walking right into it. Let's go to my BFF, Danny Glover, please. Danny? You got to unmute, Danny. There you are. You're on mute, Danny. So many brilliant voices here speaking and and knowing that we, we, we are in the service of struggling to tell truth and speak truth to power. I, I'm, I'm enamored with every single person on this call because of their, their earnest truth-telling, their enormous passion for, 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 define, for, for shaping a consciousness of struggle. And struggle is constant, continuous, uh, with the resolution of some contradictions. You also see the uh, appearance of other contradictions. And I, 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 as, as, as someone who, in the first statement I made, qualify myself as a quasi-historian, I'm trying to kind of figure out and understand all these particular currents that have defined not only our relationship to power, but the world's relationship to power in reference to this country, a settler state. That means that other people occupied this country and they came here and swept those other people aside. We can say whatever happened, whatever, no. And then have have the extraordinary moment in human history where we have the Industrial Revolution, which transformed a poor country by virtue of uh, its poor country at the time of its founding, by 1840, arguably the richest country in the world in the 1840s. So in that sense, in that sense, and soon to be militarily, militarily within a century, the most powerful country in the world, period. And this moment now, this moment where its power has to some extent receded uh, because of the uh, emergence of other powers, at the same time, is struggling to sustain its, its power among its own people uh, by uh, different symbols of nationalism and the power around upon the rest of the world as well. And it's challenged in that sense. Internally, we, 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 we have, in, in a sense, to build the kind of coalitions which continue to address the issues of equity, just the issues of poverty, uh, to address the issues of, of, of employment, there's no reason why we can be fully employed. employed. The answer, all the kind of real 
conditions that affect our communities and, and allow us to build our community based upon our own convictions, our own ideas of ourselves, our own sense of, of, of our own humanity. All those things are, 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 are that we, we continue to struggle with. That's where we are at this particular moment. In a, a very, a very enormous I mean, a crisis that has faced us and that faces us in the future, and that is the future of the planet itself. Global warming, climate change, which has often always affected those impoverished and those people of color historically, is now on our doorstep. And and with all the demands that we're of, of a population in the planet of 15 billion people. No one even, take for instance to COVID-19, no one even talks about the conversation that, that is necessary within uh, what is happening to our beloved Africa, the home, the home of, uh, of, of us and, and our, our home, our, our, our ancestors, nobody's talked about that. There's not even a conversation about the impact that COVID-19 is having on that. So all of these, all these dynamics are important. And, and as, as long as we keep broaden, broadening our perspective and understanding of the dynamics and understanding of how we and where we need to struggle at the moment against those, those, those contradictions within ourselves and within the system that governs us is important. I, I, don't, I don't know, we're almost nearing the end of this moment, but, but it's, it's certainly, certainly important for us to remind ourselves, as, as we would say during the Portuguese colonial wars, the independence, a luta continua, which in Portuguese means the struggle continues. And, and, and all of our input and all our, our, our enormous diverse uh, imagination and imagination is critical for this right here. Imagination of what is possible and, and imagining that possibility in, in, in as resp our responsibility as citizens, citizens of not within our community, within this country, and citizens of the world. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's so much work that has to be done, just so much work that has to be done. And where we begin is another question, where we begin. That is precisely why we wanted to do this show and other shows, because there is so much work to be done. It is. We, we have a tough time relying on the church. We have a very tough time relying on the church. And I don't think that that's where we need to begin. Mm -mm. I, I don't think that's where we need to begin. We have talked about Juneteenth, reparations, Tulsa, critical race theory. What are we going to do to take the bull by the, by the horns, by the reins, and make this work? We're running out of time. We're, our, our structure, as weak as it is, is crumbling. Let's caution about the, our relationship to time and what we're doing and how people have organized 
beyond the, the, the sound of each of our collective voices or individual voices. And, and, I, and I think that in so many different ways, we, we have to understand that we, we have a crisis unlike any crisis within we, we, we've experienced. This, this COVID-19, the possibility of the variants with it, and all the other dangers, feelings of insecurity, et cetera, et cetera, that arise there. The economy that is contracted in some sort of ways, and we meaning that it was economy, even though it promoted its own sense of well-being uh, by uh, by its unemployment numbers, but the reality it was it had other issues within it itself as it uh, uh, um, applied to African Americans, you know. And I think the ideas of, of, of where do we put our energy, where do we put uh, our, our collective resources in the country is important. Should that if that 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 energy be placed less in the in in the uh, in the service of militarism or should it be placed more in the service of of, of building communities and be, be, be building the communities of love uh, building the communities of unity building the communities i mean i, I remember talking to a fourth grade teacher in um, detroit at one time and the first thing he asked his students every day, every, every year, at the, every year at the beginning of the class, rather, is that what's the, the question being, what does it mean to be a human being? It's the first question of philosophy. And the second question is, how do you know? Mm-hmm. And those are kind of things that, that if we, 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 we can dangle and we can we can juxtaposition ourselves around the most elaborate conversations about that. But how will people on a daily basis live in their lives as individuals and forming communities of collective engagement? That becomes that, the bottom of that, the bottom line of that. And yes, yes, we, we still have to, in our peculiar, reality deal with the issue of race, racism, and in relationship to its historic past and relationship to how it manifests itself in the present as well. Thank you. Thank you. Yolanda, can I say something, please? Sure, please. Yes. Yes. I have on the line uh, a young lady, Britannia. She's a part of Child Care Changemakers. And right now lobbying for, I believe, the amount is $10 billion for child care to our minorities, especially our black children in particular, and she, uh, many daycare owners, because you said earlier, Fred Douglas, he says, easier to build strong children than to repair men. We've got to start uh, with the children from in the womb, teaching the mothers how to talk to the child while they're in the womb, reach to the children, and then daycare. We've got to get this money in daycare now, and we're lobbying, we're asking president to make sure that this money is allocated toward our children to make sure in our inner cities that our children are getting this money so they can these parents can afford daycare in the projects which i've come from the projects and lived in these areas this daycare is so important and i've been a daycare on over three daycares and i've helped a lot of single parents it's so important so i wanted to shout that out for child care change makers um 
And um, I'm believing it's going to come to pass. And I just want to share that. Thank you very much. Ken, is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, no, for, well, just that uh, I am, am proud and, and just honored and humbled. We have all this brilliance on, on this call tonight. And thank you so much, each and every one of you. You've imparted your knowledge, and I think we're all the wiser for it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Amos, uh, uh, James Turgnett, James Tucker, uh, Danny Glover. All you gentlemen are, are wealth of knowledge. And I just hope everyone, this 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 is out on YouTube now. It's going to be out there. And the podcast will be out there probably by the end of the week. And make sure you tell everybody to listen. I'm going to tell everyone to make sure that they listen to this because it has been outstanding, an amazing, an amazing thing. I'm getting um, uh, chats, people telling me this is an amazing panel, uh, really congratulating everyone on the job. Very well done. And with that being said, uh, we'd like to go ahead and start the closing statements. I'll let... Uh, uh, Colette leads you through that, but we've got about uh, eight minutes left, so we just want to uh, get a last word from everybody. So, Colette, please uh, lead us through that. Absolutely. And James Turgnet, your closing statements, please. Sure. I just want to give God honor, and I want to honor you for thinking enough of me uh, to be on this broadcast with such great people uh, like Danny Glover, um, Amos Jones, um, Dr. James Tucker, uh, just so many, Miss Silva Myers, so many great people yourself. It's been a pleasing time and let us come together and let us do this as a team. And it, it, it's our time now. And I'm thankful to be a part, be alive and, and do what needs to be done. Thanks a million. God bless you. Thank you very much. And Sylvia Myers. Sylvia Myers. Is there any parting statements that you'd like to make? Okay. She's not there. Professor. Oh, there she is. Okay. okay. <laughs> yes. Um, again, thank you, Colette and Kenny, for inviting me on this show this evening. Uh, it was a great listening to all the great minds. Um, um, and I thoroughly uh, enjoyed myself and, and hopefully we can all roll up our sleeves and get to work and bring others alongside of us and, and work along with us. Great. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Professor Jones. Yeah. My I, BF, I yeah. just echo everything everyone has said and give thanks for this opportunity and for the listeners, especially who, like us, will go out into the world to do. And I would just um, encourage us to follow advice I heard given by the great African Kenyan orator, contemporary orator, and he happens to be a law professor, uh, P.L.O. Lumumba, um, addressing the All Saints Cathedral of Nairobi, an outstanding Anglican cathedral, um, on the eve of the Kenyan elections a few years ago, where tribalism, Kenya has a problem with tribalism, and that that house where he's belonged since the 70s has tried to break that down and be what's a voice of reason in public policy in Kenya. And he told the people on the eve of that very contentious election with very fractious divisions, agonize but organize. Mm -hmm. Agonize but organize. And that means to be uh, your own eyes and ears be in dialogue, be in charitable, um, in charitable uh, 
argument in the most positive sense of that word with your co-laborers in the struggle. Some of the best ideas come when we test each other's ideas and, and inferences against the way others saw the same phenomenon. Again, you're not going to get this on the white TV. We have to do this ourselves. Dr. <laughs> King talked about that. Frederick yes. Douglass talked about self-asserted <laughs> personhood. We have the capacity for that. And we've done it in the recent past. Let's get back on task. And we all here are in the right direction for sure. And I hope that we all work together and build, build, build. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are such a wealth of information. And Mr. Danny Glover, your closing statement, please. Okay. Go ahead and unmute Danny. You're on. There you go. Certainly. um, I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate so much to be a part of this conversation, uh, Ms. Williams. I, I'm, I'm uh, certainly honored to be in conversation with uh, my brothers and sisters here who uh, deep, think so deeply about and whose concerns are so genuine and, and, and so dynamic as we try to all collectively think through this. I appreciate that and appreciate their voice. It makes me smile uh, at, at, at the possibilities of, of this conversation further itself and in the search of that elusive thing called truth. And, and our engagement sustains itself in ways that in some way, as, as, as Paul Robeson said, that each generation makes its own history and is judged by the history it makes. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. And I wanted to go to our best friend, Chauncey Brown, who told us about the kings and queens and where we come from. Chauncey, one final thing that you'd like to get out. Well, I wanna say thank you for having me, Ken and my sister, Colette. Um, This has been an extraordinary show today. I have not only learned a lot, uh, but I'm extremely humbled and blessed to be in the same presence of, I'm a big fan of Danny Glover. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I'm sorry. Listen, I'm sorry, everybody, but I got to give the big D his props. (laughs) You know, Mr. Glover, I love you, man. And you listening to you today, your insight, your intuitiveness, your thought process. I've only seen you as an actor, not as a person. You are an extraordinary individual. And I am so honored and blessed to have this opportunity to listen to you today. God bless you, man. Thank you. And God bless the things that you have done by paving the paths for others like myself and others in the actress industry that have come behind you. If it weren't for people like you, I and many of all of us here would not be here today. God bless you. And I love you, Mr. G. <laughs> I love you, man. <laughs> I love you. Brother Brown, I love you. <laughs> you love me too. <laughs> it has truly, truly been an honor to have all of you on. All of you. It has been an honor. 
And as we have said in the very beginning, it is time to tell the truth. When Ken said it's time to tell the truth, I said, that's it. It is time to tell the truth. It's overdue. It is overdue. And we wanted to do this. We've made this a five-part series because there's so much to talk about and there's so much work that has to be done. So this is not it. This is part two. We're on to part three. And when I tell you what part three is going to be about, everybody's going to say, oh my God, will we ever get past it? Yes, it's about the variant. It's about COVID-19. But I do want to say thank you all. Thank all of you for being with us. It has been profound. It has been enlightening. It's been educating. And we are not finished. We are not. We haven't even begun. So please keep your eyes and ears peeled because you know I will be calling you. Thank you for being here with us on this evening. And as Ken said, this will be out on all of the podcast platforms. This is itrnradio.com. And let me say this before we go. When Ken and I decided to do this radio network, it was on one of my many trips to and from, from LA to Dallas. And we decided, let's see what it looks like on, on the tube. We took out our computers and we said, let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can do. So I said, I don't want to do this because I'm not real photo- photographic. I'm not real photogenic. So I don't want to see my face on camera. But we kept going and kept going. And we said, oh, we're going to figure out how to do this. I went back to L.A., went to work. And one day he sent me a message and said, I found it. Black Talk Radio. We started on Black Talk Radio almost seven years ago. And we've evolved and we've grown and we're continuing to grow. And it gets better and better because of people like you. We're heard in over 55 different countries. Ken sent me a text and said Puerto Rico is listening. The Republic of Nigeria, Kenya, we're all over the planet. Because of people like you, because of the message that we send, because of the work that we feel we have to do in the community, you all make it possible. And I want to say thank you. We are so humbled that you have joined us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you to our hosts who who are also on this broadcast. It's been a pleasure. Have a good evening. Everybody be safe going home. If you need a ride, let us know. (laughs) Put your mask on and be very, very safe. And remember, this is ITRN, Intentional Talk Radio Network. Remember, be safe. And do what you need to do. If you're not taking the vaccine, bone up on the vitamins D, C, zinc, echinacea. I'm not going to say you have to do that. I'm going to say you have to be healthy. You have to be healthy and strong, one or the other. So have a good night, everyone. Take care and thank you for being with us and thank you for being a part of this broadcast. Have a good night. Take good night. care. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night.